We are back with another episode of Just Us Two. It's the dubious duo. It's me and Stefan. So yeah. prepare for chaos because Stefan chose the title of this episode. I have no fucking idea what what it is related to or what it means, and I'm slightly concerned as to the possibilities. But it's usually something fun, so we're going to find out. It's together. excellent. Wait, you're going to want a game by the end of this. I'm going to want a game by yes, the end of this. and that's the cow semen relation. <laughs> if just hearing <laughs> cow in the US military reminds me of destroying humans, instinctually. But, uh, hold on, also, I've just thought what? in my head that it's bulls that you get semen from. You don't want to be trying to get semen out of a cow. Yes, that uh, that confused me as well. But I thought, yeah, I thought, the, I thought whatever subject you had was related to the fact I'm that it's okay. okay. I suppose you're better off trying to get semen out of a cow than milk of a bull. I mean, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little tidbit there, but yeah, there's a that's that's what life advice for this episode. Yeah, life never try and get milk bull. out of a bull. <laughs> <laughs> Among among other life advices that we can give. Yeah, we're fully oh, qualified God. to do that. We're fully qualified to give life advice. We're <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you... You're, you're presenting this week, so I'll, I'll not put in until it's my turn. Right, I am presenting this I am going to start out with a fucking swing out of the park with okay. randomness and stupidity. I like it. You know how Chavs love to wear big fake eyelashes okay like the absolutely ridiculous things that look like you could you could just pour a bottle of water on top and half of it would still be on the upper eyelash by the time you finish <laughs> okay yeah appar- apparently there was a there's a theory or a rumor uh, about the history of those eyelashes where they are called the cumbrella oh uh, i don't want to go down this road already and in 1882, a London prostitute invented the elongated lashes or cumbrellas to block semen from getting in working girls' eyes. Dude. Oh. It's why? linked to your cow semen. This, why. That is not the link to my cow semen. <laughs> well, it's the randomness, and I just found it hilarious. But for anybody wondering, it is... It's, it's classed as more myth than fact. It's classed as... This has been said. This is what it is, but it's uh, it's it's also been attributed to a Hollywood director wanting to make people's lashes longer and trying to mm, glue hair onto them. And there's also the Victor uh, was it the Victorian era or the 1900s where people would use needles and literally stab them into their eyes very painfully, including the high fashions of France where they would stab them in their eyes and those that couldn't take the pain tolerance would just try and glue them on and all sorts. The history of la- lashes is surprisingly fucking monstrous. Well, you learn something new every day, I suppose. End of all points. Anyway. Uh, well, you can use them... Eyelashes, if you're playing this game. Not really, but I'll tell you Would you, I mean, would you like me, would you like me to find a better link for you? Well, you, you can would, if you want, but... You would have I wanna, to probably tell me a little bit about the game first in chat. I want to buy this game. We're going to buy this game. 
So in 19, I think it was 86, um, Waddington's the famous the game company. The famous game Re- company who, what, didn't they do Monopoly? Yes. Yeah, yes. amongst other things. Right, amongst now, other things, but no, Monopoly is the most famous probably, because everybody yeah. knows Monopoly. So, they brought this game out. It's very hard to find and get hold of, but it was a thing, and it is, and you probably can't buy it somewhere, but I haven't found that yet, but I haven't really looked to buy it yet. But, and it's right. called, and are you ready? Because this is a really catchy title that you'll not forget. No, I'm I'm getting ready to type. Oh, well. It's called Grade Up to Elite Cow. Grade Up to Elite Cow. I mean, yeah. if, I didn't even need to finish typing it. Really? Okay. Right. I, While I, you're I looking for in, how much it is. I typed in Grade Up to L and it, it automatically came in with Elite Cow. Elite Cow eBay. Well, how you found how much? How much? We're going to get this. Uh. I tried this a couple of weeks ago and couldn't get one. <laughs> it's a very rare game. Leave me with it, yeah. Right, okay. So while you're doing that, I'll, I'll explain to you because you're going to probably find out it's quite expensive and guessing if it's this rare and then you're not going to want to buy it. But I'm going to I'm gonna persuade you to invest. Are you ready? Ooh, you've got to basically uh... imagine Monopoly, but instead of buildings, you've got cows. Right. Right. So... Uh, it was marketed as a game of skill and chance for dairy farmers, and it was created in partnership with the British Frisian Cattle Society, uh, with the aim to... Basically, in the game, you have to trade in bull sperm in order to improve the quality of your herd. I'm sorry, what? You have to... The, it's the aim of the game is you have to trade in bull sperm in order to increase the quality of your herd. So, each player starts with six cows and £1,500, Right? From the bank, cows can only be upgraded by collecting semen discs as players work their way around the board. Uh huh. Um, but there are things, um, problems along the way. So you can pick up market cards which says this cow has persistent mastitis. Sell her at market price, and you won't advance to green, greener pastures. Um, the first player to grade up four of their non-pedigree cows, so they get starting cows, yeah, six cows, um, to elite status, is crowned the winner. Um, yeah, so I don't, it's, it's just a game about dairy farming, where you trade bullsburn. Yes, of course. Who doesn't want that? Mm-hmm. Have you found it yet? Uh, I found one on a website that <laughs> it pertains that it's from eBay, it's for nineteen ninety five. Deal. Well, God knows if you'd actually get it because the website's not exactly the most um, amazing. Yeah. Funny enough, there's no second page on Google. You go past page one, and there's if you go past page one, and there's nothing else. So yeah. You've got page one or nothing. Well, there's the. Uh, it's quite rare. Uh, there was some. Uh, it was a. Where was it? I'm trying to look because there was one donated. They were donated a museum. I think. Uh, yeah, it's from 1986. Um, the, the, the Museum oh. of English Rural Life. <laughs> Thank you. 
Is that the right one? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I've got you three. Thank you. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, I've just had a coke delivery. Me mom just me mom's been at us and she came in saying, I forgot you I forgot your puff, but he has a can. <laughs> so I've got a coke can delivery. <laughs> you can't you can't keep muting Jordan and not mute yourself. I know, I'm so, it's just because it was so funny. Oh sorry. Oh fuck. Uh, so this this is an article on from 2018. It's actually BBC News. And it's, no, it's one of Britain's... I, I, I want to still talk about this fucking elite cow. Oh, we are. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm about to say. It says, when one of Britain's uh, biggest game makers folded, it left behind a huge archive of titles. But for every family favourite, there were quite a few you might not have heard of. For decades, yeah. Waddington's products sat on living room shelves across the country. The Leeds-based firm was the UK publisher of Monopoly, with its stack of pastel paper money and fights over who gets to play a top hat and a host of other classics. But after its final roll of the dice in 1994, donated its entire collection of more than a thousand games and jigsaws to local museums. And not all were household names, as staff discovered during the recent stock take. Kitty Ross, Leeds Museums and Galleries Social History Curator, said, We've certainly uncovered a quirky collection of weird and wonderful games which haven't quite stood the test of time. Among the hidden gems is your typical rainy day mix of spooky thrills, hip thrusting and bovine reproductive fluids. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's yeah. I don't uh-huh. know. <laughs> uh, I th- I think you might be struggling to buy it. Honestly, I, I feel like the the only place that I've found it is on PickClick, right? Where you, it's like eBay, so you have to sort, you have to bid for it type thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see details on eBay. Nah, it's gone. Someone bought it, so it's just a remnant. Holy God fuck, someone's selling an original Nokia. You've been distracted. I have been distracted, but someone's selling an original Nokia 3315. Which has apparently been upgraded to a three three one zero and silver, and it's unlocked. It says mobile, very very rare. It's not very very rare. It was the most common fucking mobile ta- mobile phone of our time. You can go to any brick wall, and you'll probably find one hidden inside the brick. <laughs> nah, man, I want it. I want it so bad. It's so stupid, but I want it. I want. I want. I want that game. I also got distracted by a game called Escape from Colditz. Ah, I've heard of that. It looks amazing. There's, I was watching people do a... It's like a video game emulator for PC type thing. Yeah. A board game emulator, and they were playing it on PC, and it looks absolutely amazing. But it also looks absolutely chaotic. Because one of person. you... And one of you has to play the Germans. Deal. Well, that would mean whether I wanted to or not, wouldn't it? Possibly. Because <laughs> you great just though. make me be the Germans. It's great, though, because the person that I was watching who was playing the Germans had a whistle and all sorts. They got very into it. <laughs> I need a fucking whistle. I need a 1930s whistle. <laughs> I know, me too. It was great. <laughs> mm. 
one of the air raid sirens that you wind up. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking yes. We need to do it. That's the plan. We're going to stream that at some point. That's going to happen. <laughs> we stream it. I have headphones on when, I, when we stop streaming and I turn the uh, turn my laptop and everything off. I wonder why everybody's evacuated the street as I've been cranking my air raid siren. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Right, anyway, we've become you can, distracted. You can still buy it. You can still <laughs> buy it. It's 42 quid on Amazon. Jesus. Uh, it's an anniversary an edition. It's an anniversary edition because it came out a while ago. Right. Um, I'll, I'm going to let you move on. I'm going to look for an area title. You can get one for 30 quid. Ooh. And it's portable. I did just look, and it's the crank one. <laughs> yes. Anyway, speaking of air, air raid sirens, you know how there's a war going on? Where? Not Germany? No, in uh, in Ukraine. <laughs> and you, you know how the Russians yeah. are being a bit of a laughing stock at the minute with their tactical choices, shall we say? Tactical blunders. Yeah. Um. Right, okay. So... I'm not even too sure how to say this because it's just something that you never, you would never expect soldiers to do because it's so stupid. Okay, I've got something along the same lines. <laughs> right. So, what is something that you get told not to do in case of an emergency, such as a fire in any building that has more than two or three floors? Oh, uh, take an elevator. Exactly. A team of Russian soldiers ignored this completely during wartime. <laughs> a, a team of Russian soldiers wanted to use the elevator to reach the roof of an office building. The Ukrainian administration of said building trapped them inside by simply cutting off the electricity. The Ukrainians also had an industrial camera take a, a beautiful commemorative phone, uh, photo <laughs> because, of course, there's a camera inside the fucking lift. And it's just do, a do bunch you... of Russian, Russian soldiers sitting there going, oh, fuck. <laughs> Can I just point out that in on both sides of this situation is me. Yeah. You're going up there while I'm taking the fucking lift in, and then there's also the version of me at the top that's going, they're in the lift. Mm, turn the power off them. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's the most stupid thing. If you're going to take over a building that's brilliant. in a war zone, surely you would not take the elevator. I would expect if you're going for the top floor in wartime, then it's surely helicopter onto the roof and quick rope down. Helicopter onto the roof, or as we've seen, Russia <laughs> isn't that well supplied currently, apparently. No, At least have one helicopter. S- slowly take the stairs, and you would assume <laughs> either, sec- either secure floor by floor, as <laughs> is expected. It's not because they don't have helicopters, it's because all the pilots are stuck in lifts. <laughs> <laughs> they are. That's, that's what happened. They were trying to get to their own stuff. <coughs> it's been towed away by a tractor by now. Oh, hey. Uh, or sunk. Okay. That one is so sunk. <laughs> sunk, yes. There is a new panther of the lake. <laughs> yeah. For any memers oh, out there. That For is any awesome. tumbler people out there. Uh, uh, I don't I... tumble. Uh, I, do, I tumble a lot. I don't do it on Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> right. What is your link to that? And then I will move on to our favourite plane. 
I have a rival stupidity of not wartime, but of the military. Okay, um, yes. And I would like to, in an unusual turn of events, point out the stupidity of the US military. Because we'll never pick on the US. Oh no, we are infamous for never picking on the US. How do you think... So this was in 2011. Right? Okay. So and what I'm th- gonna... this was during... Was it Iraq or Afghanistan at that time? Yeah. Oh no, so, sorry. Both. Sorry. It, the, this company started in 2011. It was during 2013 that um, ha- it happened. So what I want you to... Right. Basically, I'll read you a snippet. So it says, uh, this is from an article called, uh, from, it's called the USBport.com. So it's technology, I'll give you that, right? Okay. Now, to battle obesity in 2013, right, the Pentagon (laughs) encouraged the use of... I like where this is going straight away, sorry. Right? So what I want you to work out, if you can, is how did a plan to battle obesity gave away military base locations. <coughs> and primarily, this... really, the biggest problem was in Afghanistan. <laughs> right. Was this where it was an app or something that you had to download and it would track you, but it would also track your location and all this sort of stuff? And did soldiers download this app and then the app got hacked or leaked and basically it was sitting there going oh this person's here in afghanistan what they're doing there type thing you are very close but also not nearly as stupid okay right so is it they hired this company to come and do something at this base (laughs) right in 2011, Fitbit was criticised for activity sharing sentence. For many people, the private data was set to unknown. So many uh, complained about the public default setting. The public setting allows the main headquarters of Fitbit to draw a heat map, which is published by the GPS tracking company Strava, which doesn't provide a live map, but does draw a heat pattern for the 27 million users sub- subscribed to smartphones. Oh, right? no. The so you can see a heat map. Okay, the heat in a fucking military base, if even a few soldiers were wearing a Fitbit. Oh well, my this God. is the thing. To battle an <laughs> obesity, in 2013, the Pentagon encouraged the use of Fitbits amongst, amongst the military, and it resulted in the distribution of nearly 2,500 as a pilot program. Hold on, uh, hold, hold on. Before you even finish that, they had to try and tackle obesity in their military. <laughs> yes! <laughs> What the f- <laughs> This is the military. This is where you are trained to be the pinnacle. So they provided on-tour US troops with Fitbit products. The site doesn't re- reveal I- any, any identification, anything like that, but it does reveal locations with heat trackers. Um, and Fitbit is a bit of an exclusive service, but there are many official unknown US or UN military camps, in this case, the fitness tra- tracking app, Strava gave away the location of US military staffing and spying outposts through their data on a visualized map. So basically, all oh right, so Nathan they, Russell. They, they, they didn't check at all before deploying these. They just went, oh yeah, we need to battle obesity. Send this thing across to all the troops. Yeah, send it across to something anybody can get, right? Yeah. 
then you get a heat map so you, you see where more people are. So if you are in Afghanistan and you look at this map and you see, oh, that's really like there's a lot of activity going around like that. Yeah, that's where they're doing their jogs around the base. And yeah. oh, there's a lot of like straight line activity here. Okay, that's a runway. Yeah. <laughs> they just gave everything away. Fuck's sake. So Nathan Russa, an analyst for the United Conflict Analysts, stated that the heat map. Uh, the map looks very pretty, but it's not amazing for operational security. US bases are clearly identifiable and mappable. <laughs> if soldiers clearly. use the app like normal people do, by turning it on to by turning on tracking when they do exercise to track the calories and such, it could be especially dangerous. Highlighting one particular track that looks like it logs a regular jogging route. Another compromising fact for coalition forces in the Middle East is that basically all Fitbit and Strava users are foreign military personnel. <laughs> <laughs> In particular war zones where the nighttime is extremely dangerous, the military staff could be exposed. So it's not it's it's basically it was given away in Syria, sorry, not not Afghanistan. So basically okay. what they realized is pretty much everybody in Syria that used a Fitbit was an American soldier. And if you looked where they all ran round the outside like in the same route, it was either a runway, an important road, or that outline of a military base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you could just log on and go. Well, that's really operations are happening. <laughs> so does yeah, that mean, does that mean if they were making an excursion into a town for like a day, you would just randomly see a blip of them heading that way, and you could just go, "Oh, we need to leave this place, hide all the guns because they're on the way." Well, no, not necessarily because obviously they put it on when they're doing exercise. So the, the problem was that they wouldn't wear it when they're out and about and doing things. You wouldn't be able to track them like that, and it would never live track someone, so you'd never be able to see where a Fitbit was. But what it would do was, if if I come round to yours and we both ran up and down your street all the time with another twenty people, then it would show as like a hotspot because that's where a lot of Fitbits are moving. Yeah. So literally having like even 10, 20 soldiers, which obviously there wouldn't be, it would be most of them on a morning jog, probably hundreds. There were two and a half thousand of these given out, would get out and would either do, uh, you know, run up down the runway so many times or do laps around the outside of the compound, like around the perimeter. Then yeah. you'd see, like on the heat map, okay, that's where a lot of activity goes, like that, and that would be the outside of <laughs> your fucking base. <laughs> <laughs> that is just beautiful and so stupid. So yeah, and these are the people that gave us our favorite plane. That is the concerning part. <laughs> that uh, that is the people that had access to one of the best planes ever made. That is the concerning part. But, but it, uh, Strava did update in 2015. So two years later. Yeah. This update includes six times more data than before. In total, one billion activities <laughs> from all Strava data through September 20, 2017. Our global heat map is the largest, richest, and most beautiful data set of its kind. It is a direct visual visual visualization of Strava's global network of athletes. So Strava's response was to completely ignore this, and then two years later, I make it even more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I think Strava was sitting there going, if you're going to be that stupid, we're just going to make it easier. (laughs) But yeah. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it was an Australian college college student uh, that was on his summer break that exposed exposed this massive security flaw (laughs) in the US Army. Okay, I want to know, what, what student 
is sitting on the summer break and just decides, you know what, I'm going to look at the Strava heat map and then scrolls all the way across out of his country to Syria. Nathan Russo. Was he in Syria at the time? No, he's just an Australian college student. And but to be fair, though, you'd wonder if you had if you if I had a map like that and it showed a heat map. So if I had the Strava thing, I would look around and see where 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 people are active, just out of curiosity. And if you scrolled across Syria and just see the outline of three or four bases or the outline of three or four quite clear compounds that really stand out. I suppose <laughs> it's the Google Earth conundrum where yeah. people will just sit on Google Earth for an hour and just go, hmm, what's over here? Click that and then can just be another episode. I've found a lot of questionable things on Google Earth. Wait, didn't the person who stole, like, a th- hundreds upon hundreds of bicycles and they were just piling up <laughs> in the thing and they found them on Google Earth and you yes. could literally see it from a fucking satellite? Pretty much. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, it's there's also, a video on it like, I could send you later. It's also like your ridiculous hobby of listening to fucking traffic controls. That is not a ridiculous hobby. I love it and hate it at the same time because I love the fact that it's a thing, but I hate the fact that you just sit there and listen to them and some of the shit that captains must say. I don't think I'm supposed to be listening to Tokyo Air Traffic Control for Tokyo National Airport when I'm at work, so we're not going to discuss it on here because it might be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> then we will talk about something that was completely illegal, <laughs> uh, which is to do with the Blackbird, everybody's favourite plane, our yes. favourite plane. I've mentioned it a couple of times when we've, be, when we've been saying favourite plane. The plane that could outrun surface-to-air missiles designed to take it out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> The plane that is basically a fucking rocket ship. They're trying to shoot with down, alright, we'll fly a bit higher and faster then. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And this is the fact that it once flew from LA to Washington in 64 minutes, with the average speed of flight being 2,145 mile per hour. How See, do you make a missile follow that? That is why it's excellent. How do you make a missile follow that? But it's all, the best part about it is who the pilots were <laughs> so uh, before you do that i do know a couple of things so i know that the way that they designed the panels because the stretch when they, do, they are, yeah. when the, when the, you're they, they so to, fast they have to walk because if they were stiff they would just crumple break or fly off yeah but don't they also have a gap like the tolerance is like out so when you go up and look at it it looks like it's not built properly and it's because when you get high and fast enough it actually like they expand and the, it seals itself out yeah it's so it's much it's much like how a rocket ship needs to have that flexibility and that sort of... Awesome. It feels like it's completely wrong and isn't built completely, but it's by design. Otherwise, it just warps and destroys itself from the inside. Makes you wonder how many prototypes are destroyed before they work that out. <laughs> Quite a few, I feel like. <laughs> Quite a few. <laughs> you wouldn't um, want to eject and pull your parachute at Mark 2, would you? <laughs> no. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling they perfected it before they sent a human up in it. Otherwise, Hopefully. yeah. Hopefully. It is it is America, you never know. Yeah. But apparently We're not um, picking on America this week, Kyle. What do you mean we're not? <laughs> we always do. But I've got two fav- I've got two stories. Since I sent it to Stefan, we can collab on 
the first story, so I'm going to tell the second story quickly, and then we can call up in switching between who's telling the, the first story. I'll be honest, I was reading the second story. <laughs> the, the second one's the small one, yeah? Yeah, I started reading both, but yeah, I didn't. I, yeah. I haven't actually read it properly. Yeah, that's fine. Well, I'll quickly read the short one, and then we can both do the long one, because the long one, <laughs> we will get sick of hearing my voice. So... This is from this is a story from an F fourteen pilot who transitioned to F eighteen. Uh, he was flying training maneuvers over Death Valley once and heard a pilot come up on the main frequency, uh, asking control for clearance to angle sixty, which basically means clearance to go to sixty thousand feet. Kyle, uh, Kyle, 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 yes, angels. You got your angles and your angels mixed up. Oh, for fuck's sake, it's because I misread it, shut up. <laughs> it's because, in my mind, it should be angles, because you get, you're getting permission to go upwards to 60,000 feet yeah. or downwards to 60,000 feet. You f- it feels like it should be angles, not angels. But yeah, yes, angels, angels fly. Angel 60. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, the, the highest... Uh, logic. <laughs> uh, highest the F-14 Tomcat typically goes is within the 30,000 feet range. So yeah. the controller, who was apparently a new guy, who had only dealt with Tomcats before, uh, and they could tell this because he asked in a very sarcastic tone, Son, how do you expect to get all the way up there? <laughs> to which the pilot replied, Joshua Control, lightning. We don't want to get up to 60. The other pilot said patiently like he'd had this conversation before. We want to get down to it. <laughs> a pause, then the controller, definitely a new guy, asked slowly, Y'all a blackbird? <laughs> to which it went, Lightning, a firm. Another pause, and then a new voice, speaking very clipped, Lightning, Joshua, you are clear to descend Angel 60. Apparently the guy the guy is quoted as saying that he could hear the obviously much more experienced radio <laughs> controller rolling his eyes at the new guy. It's also apparently better to die than to sound bad on the radios. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. (laughs) That is quite funny, though. That is the best thing. But just the fact of the new guy sitting there going, how do you expect to reach that height in there sitting there going, well, we want to go down to it, thank you. I do. I'll I'll, I'll put a pin in it for now, but I do also have another... um, Transcript of a of a humorous um, military radio communication. Awesome. This is going to be the military communication episode from some. <laughs> no, but it's really funny. I remember. Right. So, this is from another pilot. Complete quote. All right. It's going to take a little while. It's from Brian Schull, uh from the book Sled Driver Flying the World's Fastest Jet. So it's from a pilot who's wrote a book about it and all that sort of stuff. <coughs> and he said, There were a lot of things we couldn't do in an SR-71, but we were the fastest guys on the block and loved rem- reminding our fellow aviators of this fact. People often asked us if, because of this fact, it was fun to fly the jet. Fun would not be the first word to, I would use to describe, to describe flying it. Intense, maybe, even cerebral. But then there was one day in our sled experience when we would have to say it was pure fun to be the fastest guys out there, even for at least a moment. It occurred when Walt and I, so he's co-pilot, were flying our (laughs) final training sortie. 
We needed 100 hours in the jet to complete our training and attain mission ready status. Somewhere over Colorado, we had passed the century mark. We made, we made the turn in Arizona and the jet was performing flawlessly. Uh, ripping across the desert, the barren deserts, 80,000 feet below us, I could already see the coast of California from the Arizona border. Uh, I was beginning to feel a bit sorry for Walter in the back seat. There he was, with no real view of the incredible sight before us, tasked with monitoring, monitoring four different radios. Um, However, I still insisted on talking on the radio while we were on the ground. But what was so so good at many things, he couldn't match my expertise at sounding smooth on the radios, a skill that had been honed sharply with years in fighter squadrons, where the slightest radio miscue was grounds for beheading. He understood and allowed me that luxury. Uh, Just to get a sense of what Walt had to contend with, I pulled the radio toggle switches and monitored the frequencies along with them. The predominant radio chatter was from Los Angeles Center, far below us, controlling daily traffic in the sector. While they had us on our scope, albeit briefly, we were in uncontrolled airspace and normally would not talk to them unless we needed to descend. We listened as a shaky voice of a lone Cessna pilot asked Center for a readout of his ground speed. Center replied, November Charlie 175, I'm showing you at 19 knots on the ground. Well, the thing to understand about Center controllers was that whether they were talking to a rookie pilot in a Cessna or the Air Force One, they always spoke in the exact same calm, deep, professional tone that made one feel important. I always referred it to, referred to it as the Houston Center voice. <laughs> uh, it didn't matter what sector of the country we would be flying in, it always seemed to be like the same guy was talking. Over the years, that tone of voice has become somewhat a comforting sound to pilots everywhere. Conversely, over the years, pilots also wanted to ensure that when transmitting, they sounded like Chuck Yeager or at least John Wayne. Better to die, better to die than sound bad on the radios again. Uh, yeah. Just mo- just moments after the Cessna's inquiry, a twin beach piped up on frequency in a rather superior tone, asking for his ground speed. I have you at 125 knots of ground speed. Boy, I thought, the Beechcraft really must think he is dazzling his Cessna brethren. Then also, out of the blue... it's just Nick Waven right now. <laughs> yep. Out of the blue, a Navy F-18 pilot out of, out of NAS Lemur came up on frequency. You knew right away it was a Navy jock because he sounded very cool on the radios. Uh, Center, Dusty 52, ground speed check. Before Center could reply, I'm thinking to myself, hey, Dusty 52 has a ground speed indicator in that million dollar cockpit. So why is he (laughs) asking Center for a readout? Then I got it. All Dusty here is making sure that every bug smasher from Mount Whitney to Mojave knows what true speed is. He's the fastest dude in the valley today, and he just (laughs) wants everybody to know how much fun he is having in his new Hornet. And the, and the reply, always with the same calm, soothing voice, with more distinct alliteration than emotion. Dusty 5-2, centre, we have you at 6-2-0 on the ground. And I thought, I thought to myself, is this a right situation or what? As my hand instinctively reached for the mic button, I had to <laughs> remind myself that Walt was in control of the radios. Still, I thought, it must be done. In mere seconds, we'll be out of the sector, and the opportunity will be lost. That hornet must die, and die now. (laughs) I thought about all of our sim training and how important it was that we developed as a crew, and knew that to jump in on the radios now would destroy the integrity of all that we had worked toward becoming. I was torn. Somewhere 13 miles above Arizona, there was a pilot screaming inside his space helmet. Then I heard it. 
the click of the mic button from the back seat. That was the very moment that I knew Walter and I had become a crew. Very professionally and with no emotion, Walter spoke. Los Angeles Center, Aspen 2-0. Can you give us a ground speed check? There was no hesitation and the reply came as if an everyday request. Aspen 2-0, I show you at 1,842 knots across the ground. I think it was the 42 knots that I liked the best. So accurate and, pr- and proud was Center to deliver that information without hesitation. And you just knew he was smiling. But this precise point at which I knew that Walt and I were going to be really good friends for a long time was when he keyed the mic once again to say, in his most fighter pilot-like voice, Ah, Center, thanks much. We're showing closer to 1900 on the money. For a moment, <laughs> Walter was a god. And we finally heard a little crack in the armor of the Houston Center voice when L.A. came back with, Roger that, Aspen. Your equipment is probably more accurate than ours. You boys have a good one. (laughs) It all had lasted just moments, but in that short, memorable sprint across the Southwest, the Navy had been flamed, all mortal airplanes on frequency were forced to bow before the King of Speed, and more importantly, Walter and I had crossed the threshold of becoming a crew. A fine day's work. We never heard another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. Because you know that after the Cessna pilot and after the second and after the military pilot, that they had seen that on the radio and they were waiting, just waiting, just thinking, go on, are they going to ask before they get out of airspace? Are they going to ask? Are they going to ask? And that's why it was an immediate response. Because as soon as they clicked and they realised they were paying, they were like, yes, they're asking. <laughs> yeah, they were sitting there so happy and so smiling. <laughs> dedication it must have taken to stifle the voice and just reply in the normal yeah we've got you and stay of going yeah (laughs) 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 no man this is why blackbirds are the best no one else can have a cockfight and then completely obliterate everybody to the point where nobody else uses the frequency while they're still in range. <laughs> Imagine being that fucking um, that uh, military pilot though, thinking you were the best. Yeah, being the navy pilot, thinking you're the best, and being all jockey and yeah, ha ha, look at me, and then just hearing, oh, we've got you one thousand and da da da. <laughs> it's just blown out of the water. Oh, it's beautiful. So beautiful. Um, so, oh. I, I have actually got the um, story of the Colonel Gaddafi surf stair missiles that couldn't catch an SR-71. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, then. These, <laughs> the, these missiles, which were specifically designed... To shoot down the SR seventy one, and then right. failed at that one task miserably. So on on April the fourteenth, nineteen eighty six, Operation El Dorado Canyon launched airstrikes against Libya in response to Libya's bombing of Ber- the Berlin discotheque frequented by U.S. military personnel. The attack was performed yeah. by a strike group of eighteen U.S. Air Force F one elevens, supported by numerous U.S. Navy and U.S. Marine Corps. A6, A7, and, and FA18 aircraft. Sorry, Naval... just, just, even just the star, that's on ridiculous. The fact that it was retaliation for bombing a discotheque. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to bomb a. <laughs> bombed... I love how they bombed a disco in Berlin to catch Americans. <laughs> I know. Dude, America. 
but yeah. Uh, on April the 16th, 1986, after the raid, SR-71 SR number 64-17960, piloted by Major Brian Schull, uh, with Major Walter Watson entered Libyan airspace at a It's them! It's them! Yeah. It's the same people! It is! It's Walt! Entered Libyan it's airspace Walt in a Brian. blistering 2,125 miles an hour. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> uh, to photograph targets for bomb damage assessment. As they neared the end of their sweeps, they started receiving launch indications from Libyan surface to air missiles below. Uh, the story of the SR-71's incredible performance allowed them to hold their course and outrun the missiles before returning home safely to our RAF Mindenhall. Uh, as, as told in a, in a book uh, by Shul himself, right? His book is called Sled Driver. Yeah, it's the same book, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for some reason, they called it a sled. That's awesome. Why so, not? Uh, He's, this is a quote from him now. He says, In April 1986, following an attack on American soldiers in a Berlin disco, President Reagan ordered bombing of uh, Muammar Qaddafi's terrorist camps in Libya. Um, my duty was to fly over Libya and take photos recording the damage our F- F-111s had inflicted. Qaddafi had established a line of death, a territorial mark and across the Gulf of Sidria, swearing to shoot down any intruder that crossed the boundary. On the morning of April the 15th, I rocketed past that line at 2,225 miles an hour. I was piloting the SR-71 spy plane, which is the world's fastest jet, accompanied by Major Walter Watson, the aircraft's reconnaissance systems officer. We had crossed into <coughs> Libya and were approaching our final turn over the bleak desert landscape when Walter informed me that he was receiving missile launch signals. I quickly increased our speed and calculating the time it would take for the weapons, most likely guessing to be SA-2s and SA-4 surface-to-air missiles, capable of approximately Mach 5 to reach our altitude. I estimated that we could be, we could beat the rocket power missiles to the turn and steered our course, betting our lives on the plane's performance. <laughs> it's, the eagle then goes on, he goes, After several agonisingly long seconds, we made the turn and blasted towards the Mediterranean. You might want to pull it back, Walter suggested. It was then that I noticed I still had the throttles full forward. <laughs> the plane <laughs> was flying. Yeah, dude. The plane was flying a mile every 1.6 seconds, well above our Mach 3.2 limit, and it was the flaccid, fastest we would ever fly. <laughs> I pulled the throttles to idle just south of Sicily, but we still overran the refueling tank away at Nassau, Gibraltar. Surprised. <laughs> Imagine waiting to refuel it. You've got one going towards you, he's going to need to refuel. Okay, what? <laughs> was that the plane? Dude, he throttled back in Sicily and missed the refueling tanker over Gibraltar. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> With the Libyan coast fast approaching now, Walt asks me for the third time if I think the jet will get to the speed and altitude we want in time. I tell him yes. I know he's concerned. He's dealing with the data. That's what engineers do, and I'm glad he is. But I have my hands on the stick and throttles, and I can feel the heart of a thoroughbred. Running now with the power and perfection she was designed to possess. Also, I also talk to her like uh, the combat veteran she is. The jet senses the target area and seems to prepare herself. For the first time in two days, the inlet door closes flush, and all the vibration is gone. We've become so used to the constant buzzing that the jet sounds quiet now in comparison. 
The Mach correspondingly increases slightly and the jet is flying in that confidently smooth and steady style we have so often seen at these speeds. We reach our target altitude and speed with five miles to spare, entering the target area in response to the jet's newfound virility, Walt says, that's amazing. And with my left hand pushing down the two throttles further forward, I think to myself, there is much more they don't teach in engineering school. <laughs> Out of my left window, window, Libya looks like one huge sandbox. A featureless brown terrain stretches all the way to the horizon. There is no sign of any activity. Then Walt, Walt tells me he's getting lots of electronic signals. They're not the friendly kind. The jet has performed perfectly now, flying better than she has in weeks. She seems to know where she is. She's <laughs> she's <clears throat> She likes the high mark as we penetrate deeper into Libyan airspace, leaving the footprint of our sonic boom across Be- Benghazi. I sit motionless with stilled hands on the throttles and the pitch control, my eyes glued to the gauges. Only the Mach indicator is moving, steadily increasing in hundredths in a rhythmic consistency similar to the long-distance runner who has caught his second wind and picked up the pace. The jet was made for this kind of performance, and she wasn't about to let an errant inlet door make her miss the show. So there was a loose inlet door at this point, apparently. Uh, Why not? There's a loose part. Mach 10. Yeah, so... As we, as we puncture the quiet African sky and continue further across the south and a bleak landscape, Walter continues to update me with numerous uh, reactions he sees on the DEF panel. He's receiving missile tracking signals with each mile we traverse every two seconds. I become more uncomfortable, diving deep into this barren and hostile land. I'm glad the DEF panel is not in the front seat. It would be a big distraction right now, seeing all the lights flashing. In contrast, my cockpit is quiet and the jet just purrs and releases her <laughs> newfound strength, continuing to slowly accelerate. He's just saying that he just he just feels the jet purring away, just slowly pushing the throttle up. Meanwhile, his partner's in the back going, "Dude, we've got missiles that coming. You can't see this shit. It's a Christmas tree." <laughs> the spikes are at full off now, tucked twenty six inches deep into the nasals, with the inlet doors tightly shut at Mach three point two four. <laughs> the J-58s are more like ramjets now, gulping about a thousand cubic feet of air every second. We are a roaring express as we roll through the enemy's backyard. I hope the speed continues to defeat the missile radars below. We are approaching a turn, and this is good. It will only make it more difficult for any launched missile to solve the solution of hitting our aircraft. I pushed up the speed at Walt's request. This jet does not skip a beat. Nothing fluctuates. The cameras still have a rock-steady platform. Walt received missile launch signals. Before he can say anything else, my left hand instinctively moves the throttles up farther forward. My eyes glue to the temperature gauges now, as I know the jet will willingly go to speeds that can harm her. <laughs> the temps are relatively cool, and from all the warm temps we've encountered thus far, it surprises me then that it doesn't. But it, it also doesn't really surprise me at the same time. Mach three point three one, and Walt is quiet for the moment. I move my glove finger across the small silver wheel on the autopilot panel, which controls the pitch. With the deft feel known to Swiss watchmakers and surgeons, <laughs> and dinosaurs, which is a term for all-time pilots who do not fly an aeroplane but feel it. <laughs> <laughs> I rotate the pitch wheel somewhere between one sixteenth and one eighth of an inch location, a position which yields about a 500 foot per minute climb. <laughs> uh, the jet raises her nose one sixth of a degree and knows I'll push her higher if she goes faster. So, they keep going, they keep going, they keep going. Then, Walt's voice pierces the quiet of my cockpit with news of more missile launch signals. The gravity of Walter's voice tells me that he believes the signals are a more valid threat than the others have been so far. Within seconds, he tells me to push it up. 
and I firmly press both throttles against their stops. For the next few seconds, I will let the Jet go as fast as she wants. A final turn is coming up, and we both know that if we can hit that turn at this speed, we'll, we, we will most likely defeat any missiles. We are not there yet, though, and I'm wondering if what will call for a defensive turn off our course before then. With no words actually spoken, I sense that Walter is, Walter is thinking in concert with me about the maintaining of our programme course. To keep you from worrying, I glance outside, wondering if I'll be able to visually pick up a missile aimed at us. Odds are, uh, thoughts that wander through one's mind in times like these. Oh, so, sorry, odd are the thoughts that wander. I found myself recalling the words, the words of former SR-71 pilots who were fired upon flying missions over North Vietnam. They said the few errant missile detonations they were able to observe from the cockpit looked like implosions rather than explosions. This was due to the great speed at which the jet was hurtling away from the actual exploding missile. So he looks out, he sees nothing, he sees nothing. They just see fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, return of my attention inwards, I glance uh, first at the miles counter, tell me how many more to go until we can start our turn. Then I note the Mac. And passing beyond 3.45, I realise that Walt and I have attained a new personal record. <laughs> the Mac continues to increase though, and this ride is incredibly smooth. There seems to be confirmed trust now between me and the jet. She will not hesitate to deliver whatever speed we need, and I can count no problems with inlets. Walt and I are ultimately dependent on the jet now, more so than normal, and she seems to know it. The cool outside temperatures have awakened the spirit board here years ago. Is the, it, it is a race this jet will not let us lose. The Mach eases to 3.5 as we crest 80,000 feet. We are a bullet now, except a hell of a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We hit the turn, and I feel some relief as our nose swings away from a country we have seen quite enough of. Screaming <laughs> past Tripoli, our phenomenal, phenomenal speed continues to rise. The screaming sled pummels the enemy one more time, laying down a parting sonic boom. In seconds, we can see nothing but the expansive blue of the med. I realise that I've left my left hand full forward, and we are continuing to rock along, rocket along in maximum afterburner. <laughs> full speed ahead. Uh, the TDI now shows us Mac numbers, not only new to our experience, but flat-out scary. Walt says the DAF panel is now quiet, and I know it's time to reduce our incredible speed. I pull the throttles to the minimum burner range, and the jet still doesn't want to slow down. Normally, the Mac would be affected immediately when making such a large throttle, mo- throttle movement, but for just a few moments, the old 960 just sat out there at, ma- at the high Mac. She seemed to love it, and the proud sled she was only began to slow down when we were well out of danger. So... And then he just ends up by saying, I love that jet. <laughs> I mean, I love that jet, and I didn't fly it. That jet, that jet was sitting there going, mm, we're not out of danger yet. I'm going to completely ignore everything that you're doing on the throttle control. I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Right, okay, now I think we're saying I'm yeah. going to start slowing down myself now. But that's mental. The fact he overshot his refueling tanker as well. Fuck's sake. <laughs> hey. Right, I have... Two strange things, moving away from military, but staying in the land of ridiculousness. Can I take you back to military first? Because I have a story that I don't know if you're going to believe, and I'm sorry. Okay, come on then. It's World War Two. Okay, always fun. It's Graham Donald. It's actually Air Marshal Sir David Graham Donald, KCB, <laughs> DFC, and AFC, often known as Sir Graham Donald. He was a Royal Naval Air Air Service pilot during the First World War and a senior RAF officer between the wars and a senior RAF commander during the Second World War. Okay. 
He was also a rugby union international, having represented Scotland twice in 1914. Why not? But we're going to skip over that. I'm just going to read you an excerpt of what happened from one of his things. Right. He became famous in the military for a miraculous escape from death, having fallen from his Sopwath camel at 6,000 feet in 1917. I'm going to read you the story. And then you're going to have one or two reactions. When I tell you how it transpired, when I get to the point where you realise <coughs> what's happened and he's, he's safe, how he hasn't died when he fell out of it, you're going to either go, fuck me, that's amazing, or you're just going to be going, no. <laughs> I mean, my first immediate question is, did you just say camel at 6,000 feet? A Sopwath camel. It's a type of aircraft. I'm about to say, because... By plane. I'm about to say, because that just sounded like he somehow had a camel at 6,000 feet. He was did. just riding it's... a normal camel. Could you see that before it went off? <laughs> before it went green screen. Can... What's it called? Sopworth camel. Sop, Sopworth camel. Sopworth. Yeah? Right. I'm going to get one up on the, on the thingy, on the screen then, for people so you've to You've got a see. biplane up there. Right, so he's a knight commander of the Order of Bath. He's got the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Force Cross, and he's mentioned in dispatches twice. And he's got the War Cross Second right. Class for Greece. So there that's what go. it looks like for anybody watching. It it is tradition. What you think of this traditional biplane? So if you've played Battlefield One or anything like that, it's the biplane that you see. So this guy's flying long, and he's sop with camel. Yeah, awesome. In 1970, and he falls out at 6,000 feet. So, did he, I, was he shot at, or did he try to do a flip and fell out of his seat, or what? On does a it, summer's does afternoon, it that part? Yes. On a summer's afternoon, he attempted a new manoeuvre in his Sopworth Camel and flew the machine up and over. As he reached the top of his loop, hanging upside down, his safety belt snapped and he fell out. Uh, yeah. This story only gets more amazing from you. Okay. He was okay. not wearing a parachute as a matter of policy. Why? <laughs> Why? It's a matter of policy, Kyle. That's all you need to know. Was his matter of policy, fuck it, if I get shot down, I'm going to die anyway. I'd rather <laughs> die from the impact and the bullets than from slowly falling in a parachute? I don't know. Uh, the camel had continued its loop downwards. The, the, so wait, the, the, he come out... Can we just say, this, I can sort of see where this is going, but also, this is why the world wars were ridiculous, because you've got this guy refusing to use a parachute out of policy, you've got people <laughs> who, you've got the guy who charged the fucking Normandy beaches with a longbow and a broadsword, and you've got all sorts of manner of random shit as well, people who just went into banks and stole German gold for, because fuck it, they were there. <laughs> So it, apparently, a fucking group of submariners who outfitted a submarine to specifically steal stuff, they <laughs> literally got a standard issue submarine and then specifically outfitted it so that they could steal everything in sight, go underwater, and fuck off away from the war. I mean, it, it works. Uh, I think they sank. <laughs> okay, it didn't work. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember. I, I was. Me dad was watching a program, but I can't remember if the sank or it's one of those things of don't know if it actually happened. But there's traces here and there. Anyway, did, 
how let's see how this guy survived six thousand feet. I get the feeling I know just from the words the plane continued the loop. Yeah, it, it continues to loop downwards. And Donald landed on its top wing. He grabbed it with both hands, hooked one foot into the cockpit, and wrestled himself back in. Struggled to take control and executed. And I quote, "An unusually good landing." Probably because he had so much adrenaline in his fucking veins, and he felt like an action star. Where's a GoPro when you need one? Yeah, so <laughs> it, it's genuinely accepted that this happened, but there are still people that see that and go, no, it didn't happen, come on. But mm. uh, he was interviewed. He was interviewed 55 years later, and he explained, the first 2,000 feet passed very quickly, and terra firma looked damnably firmer. <laughs> as I fell I began to hear my faithful little camel somewhere nearby I couldn't look at her but suddenly I fell back on her wings <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't see her and then suddenly I was on her so I love how he fell out thought oh fuck oh no that ground's going to be a hard hit wait I can hear my plane where's the fucking ow okay it's here <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> there are so there's so much more to this guy but yeah that's do you believe that <laughs> I mean, with all the stupid shit that I've heard that's happened during the war, yes, I do. <laughs> he lived to retire so in 1947. So, There's uh, so he, much stupid shit that's happened. He lived until the ripe old age of 85, uh, where he died in 1976. So, yeah. Oh, well, good on you, buddy. Got a lot of awards. That is ridiculous. I love it. But that is ridiculous, and that just that goes to show that there will never be another war like the two world wars. Can I just point out how he got to the RAF? I'm just sorry, I've just uh, he was Did educated he accidentally drunkenly go there. Do this is just when you know when you're doing something and you get distracted by something else, then you get distracted by something else. It's that, and then you ended up flying a fucking plane. So he was. <laughs> He was educated at Dulwich College where he played in a school team that featured five future international rugby footballers. From Dulwich, he went to University College of Oxford and there and at the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. In 1914, as a surgeon probationer, he served aboard a hospital ship, a torpedo boat and a destroyer before randomly transferring to the Royal Navy Air Service in, the, in 1916. And then obviously after board? the... Yeah, he was in the Royal Naval Air Service and then between the two wars... He was then uh, he then transferred again to a senior RAF officer. So he was playing rugby. Thought I need an education, so I'll be a surgeon. Then got into the navy as a surgeon. Served on a few boats. Then thought, well, why don't I fly for the navy? And then thought, well, why don't I just join the RAF? Then he done aerobatics and he's playing. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah. He's got lost on a thought trail, except he's actually done it. He's not just chatting away like we are. Yeah. <laughs> this is what would happen if we actually did half the shit that we think we're going to try and do. Yeah. If we had the money and didn't require the money... Sorry, if we didn't require the money and the normal stability in order to live, this is what we would be like. But unfortunately, can we I, have bills. Can I just say, he didn't have a parachute on. It's not just the fact of if it's that plane, he, he wasn't if that with plane anything, he had been, had, if that plane had been two seconds earlier, oh, a second, a second earlier, going past him, he would have felt like that. The plane would have. Oh, you've broken up, buddy. <laughs> but if it, ah, oh, cool. <laughs> but yeah, he would have just completely missed. 
if it was a second earlier or a second later, yeah, he w- actually, if it was a second later, he might have ended up in the propellers. That's what I was just saying. Yeah. So I was saying, if it was a second earlier, he would have missed it. If it was a second later, then it would have just drove into him and minced him. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. <laughs> So, I don't oh, know what well. the odds of that are, but I ho- you should have put the lottery on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed you didn't, honestly. <laughs> right. I am going to leave you now with, because it's the end of the episode. and It is. Because we have hit the hour mark. And I didn't I'm going even to get leave to talk you. about Pablo Escobergas. I know. We'll talk about Pablo Escobergas next time. But I'm <laughs> going gonna to leave you with the fantastic thought of. You know how whenever you're in a in a restaurant and the waiter or the waitress always comes over when you've got a mouthful of food to ask, so how's the food? And you're just sitting there going, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if everybody learnt sign language, nobody would ever have that issue because you can just put your knife and fork down and just go, bop, bop, bop. Well, me and Nina have discussed this before sign language, and but I'll talk about to you about that a different day. But it's not to do with that. Don't worry. I I do want to learn sign language, but at the same time, I have enough difficulty learning English. Can I start a tradition of leaving you with it? Oh, I can leave you with a historical quote, or I can leave you with a a shower thought. Uh, let's say historical th- historical quote because. We always have the shower thoughts, just because I always have tons of them. Okay, you're going to have to bear with us a second. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm actually going to read you a quote by a historical person. I will read you one every week, and you're going to have one guess each week on who it is. Okay. Right. I'm not good with historical people, because my grasp on history was more about things, not people. So... So your first quote, I'll leave you with a, 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 a simple one, a, a kind of a one that doesn't really point to who it is, so it'll not be easy. It's yourself to others. If you do so, you are insulting yourself. It's an inspirational historical yeah, quote okay. from a person. Okay? Inspirational historical quotes. That definitely feels like a philosopher quote. Yeah. Which is uh, so you're on a track there. You're on a track, and that's what they're going to be like. How historical? How historical? Um, pretty recent history. Uh, I'm not going to give too much away, but I'll say it's 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 AD. So it's not it's not like some ancient Greek philosopher or anything. Okay, it's not like BC times. I'm. I'm gonna say so it's pretty. Recent. It's. It sound. It does sound quite modern. So I'm gonna say someone like Gandhi or Mandela. Yeah. Okay. But you got to pick one. You got to guess. Unless you want to just it, thought it's process gonna, it, it until you're ready for a guess. It's not gonna be either of them. It's gonna be someone completely out the blue. But fuck it, Gandhi. Okay. Well, it's not Gandhi. I'll. I'll tell you after this when we go off, and you can write them down so you can have a list of. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. If anybody else wants to have a guess, and you might find out next week if Stefan is feeling nice. No Google. No, I'm going to try and make a run at the end of the series. I think you'll not get this for a while. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you very much and for listening night. and watching. <laughs>
And I am yeah, going thank to leave you for you... listening, watching, following, supporting us. I am going to leave you with a historical quote that you are allowed to know who it's by. Uh, oh. And it's, as I hurtled through space, one thought kept crossing my mind. Every part of this rocket was supplied by the lowest bidder. John Glenn, astronaut. That's true. That is true. It has Absolutely been a pleasure. Cheapest. Yep. <laughs> it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening. Find us at all the usual places. Bye! And some unusual places. Tschüss.